Welcome to the Black Psychologist Podcast, where we have conversations and give insight into human behavior and promote mental health wellness. I'm Dr. Kyle Osborne, and with my co-host, Dr. Jason Coleman, we'll discuss health topics, everyday life issues, and try to give you a better understanding of yourself, other people, and the world around you. So just sit back, relax, and hopefully you'll leave with some information that'll have you living your best healthy life. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. All right. And we're back. We're back. We're back to the Black Psychologist Podcast. Appreciate everybody being here. Episode 24. We are moving right along. Uh, I am one half of your humble and gracious host and clinician here for all of your listening pleasures, Dr. Kyle Osborne. He is I and I am him. And of course, I am never, ever here by myself. I'm here with the one and only. He's been earning and burning, snapping necks and cashing checks. None other than Dr. Jason Coleman. How are you, good brother? I'm good, man. I never heard that one. Snapping yeah, man. Checks, man. Hey, man, look, you know, you know how we move out here. So, you know, I'm I call it like I said, we're observing, you know, and I know, you know, you, you move, you're on the move and you are, you know, making a little money while you're doing it. So that, that's all. Oh, man. You know? man. Well, as long as you emphasize the little bit of money part, you, you're on the right track, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. How you making out, good brother? I'm good, man. I can't complain. It's about, you know, 195 degrees out here. This is County, New Jersey. Um, other than that, we could boil eggs on the side on the sidewalk right now. But other than that, I'm, I'm blessed. Can't complain. So as usual, want to thank everybody for taking a time listening. Um, please continue to support. Uh, we definitely appreciate the support. Um, we're going to try to keep putting out uh, good content. So thank you. Absolutely. So uh, like we said, episode 24, appreciate. Uh, I'm just going to echo what you said. Um, again, we love the feedback. We love the comments. Continue to subscribe. The numbers are continuing to grow. So we want to push everybody or we want to appreciate and give a shout out and acknowledge everybody who's been listening and watching um, and continue to share and continue to uh, run out and tell your friends, your colleagues, your family members. Um, and we want to hear back from you. So Please uh, contact us or shoot us questions and statements and feedback at, at our uh, email, the Black Psychologist Podcast at gmail.com. Also, check out our Facebook page. And um, without further ado, we're going to get into it. All right. So, first up, all right, we're going to start in Hollywood. All right. So, uh, Red Door, Red Door Sober Living Home is, um, it has been in the news recently. For those people that aren't aware, uh, or knowledgeable of what or who Red Door is. I'm just going to give a, uh, a little background. All right. So Red Door is a high-end sober living home that operates out of a, a mansion that's out in Bel Air, California. So this is like a go-to facility for like troubled or deep-pocketed members of Hollywood community and their children. So um, to kind of frame it how Red Door um, promotes itself. They they publicize themselves as providing holistic, attachment-based, trauma-informed, individualized services to help people with trauma, substance, substance abuse, and mental health issues, okay? That's that's how they frame it and promote themselves. So it's run by uh, Alex Shohet. I'm, I'm sure I'm 
butchering his name. Uh, now he is in um, in recovery and he's an entrepreneur with a background in computers and like the dot com boom when that blew up about 20, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and his co-owner is uh, his wife, Bernadette Fried, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist who uh, also happens to be uh, is also in recovery and owns a Beverly Hills practice. OK, so uh, to kind of give you a framework of um, how this place operates. OK, so most clients, uh, it's been reported that, again, they're, they're catering to the Hollywood community. So some clients have been quoted as paying different prices, but. On average, it appears that a room costs as high as fifteen thousand per month. Okay, fifteen thousand per month to stay there, um, and this doesn't include um, all the other different intangibles and things that will come with normal treatment um, circumstances. So this doesn't include this is all this this money the fifteen thousand is not inclusive of uh, like separate billable services such as an assistance to like a dedicated support staff and case managers and sober companions and all that. So that's all a la carte. So you, that's that's an addition to the 15,000. All right. And so the reason why Red Door has been in the news recently is um, I'm going to highlight some of their, um, their notable. So at least two patients have reportedly died from overdoses in these clinics um, on their premises. Um, the two owners that I just mentioned, they have also been accused of asking, uh, some of their, their clients and other members that are suffering from substance abuse and their families to invest in their business while they're actually still in their care. So that's like, you have a client there, the owners are asking the client and their families to, Hey, we want, we have money or we have these business ventures we want you to invest in. All right. Additional background, uh, these two owners, um, Shohet and Fried, own 180 Center, which was another rehab center. Now, that rehab center got shut down in 2013. Um, an investigation found two patients had died of a fatal overdose at 180 Center. So that's why that was shut down in 2013. So they pride themselves on harm reduction. That's that's their their theme that they um, that they promote along with um, their other services that they um that they promote. Uh, so at first glance, um, this appears that I was reading the article, Jay, um, as institutional recklessness at its finest. That's what it kind of seems like <laughs> as I was reading it. Cause it just seemed like it got worse and worse as I read through, but, um, yeah. what, what did you, uh, what, what's your take on, on red door? Um, listen, how you said it, you said it the best, right? It got worse and worse as you read on. Right. What I got from this article is that, like these people that go here, like they have, in my humble opinion, they have little or no chance of quote unquote recovery, right? Mm. Or let's just say regaining some type of productive type of lifestyle, right? And I say that for a bunch of reasons, right? The reason why I say they have little or no chance is because the people that own it, there's too much, of, number one, there's too much of a financial incentive, right? Incentive. When you could charge somebody $15,000 a month, and obviously your profits go up the longer they're there. You know, that that may change a little bit. And then their practices, right? So I'm not even saying what they're doing is harm reduction because I don't think so. I think they're hiding kind of behind that term. And I don't think that term was, was meant to be used in that way. But their version of harm reduction, the clients themselves or former clients themselves are talking about employees getting them drugs. Right. So as long as you are going and getting drugs for the clients who are supposed to be in your facility, 
you know, like recovery is not on the table. You understand what I'm saying? Imagine every rehab that you've ever worked at, if the clients leave the building, what happens to them in the program? They're gone. Most of them that I've ever been through, especially if we're talking about like detox first, right? If you can't just leave and go home and then come back, um, you know w- way more than, than I do about it. So pull me back if I'm wrong. But what I'm saying is they go through great lengths to make sure that there's not illegal drugs on the premises for a reason, you know, um, because the allure and the pull is just too much. Um, so when you have cl- former clients talking about seeing people getting high while there, other people going with them to pick up drugs. And then you have people dying, which is the evidence that people are using drugs there. There's little or no, you know, um, hope for for recovery, you know, um, or for sober living, you know, um, in my opinion. So what's left? What's left is kind of just a model of how you can make the most money and how you make the most money is to kind of keep people there or not mind when they spin in and out on the cycle, you know. Um, So that's kind of how I feel. I feel like you know, um, it doesn't really seem like a legitimate uh, company. Um, you know, it's all types of questions with the last business they were running. And this one kind of seems just as shady. Yeah, what I what I, I, I dislike the most, and you, you touched on it a little, a little bit, is the harm reduction piece. Um, I have strong distaste, strong dislike. I don't want to use the word hate, but it's like when when programs or individuals mask their treatment as harm reduction. And like you said, it just, it just sounds like, or at least what it appears to be due to multiple reports is that people are actually, you know, just getting the drugs for them for a variety of different um, unethical reasons. Um, Usually harm reduction is meant for, okay, you're meeting the client or the patient where they're at. Right. So if we're talking about harm reduction, usually in a situation where, okay, you may have a client who's not ready, not ready to completely stop using the drug or the alcohol or whatever the addiction may be. So harm reduction usually is in a, a form of, okay, we're going to start to decrease usage, right? Decrease exposure. So you're meeting the, the client more where they're at, depending on like their, their stage of change. So right. you know whether they're at the contemplation action or what have you that's more what harm reduction is harm reduction is not actually going and getting the person because like they said i think um it was the reports that they would say oh well you have your sober companion and he was actually getting the person drugs prior to this individual ODing. and um what I also and I have and I have to say was really even more disturbing, and I mean I don't know his, the co-owner who's the 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 marriage and family therapist, but I I I can't I couldn't help but hold her in higher regard given her occupation and kind of given you know the oath and 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 her 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 therapeutic background is that you know when you're doing this and you know you're you've this is this is your job outside of her owning Red Door. She has her own practice. And I was reading reading as I was going through the article, some pretty disturbing things about her and that, you know, she's had her license revoked for the past four years by the California Board of Behavioral Sciences. And you and she was put on a four year probation for the reason that she was giving her own clients MDA. I mean, um, MDMA and mushrooms and, you know, ketamine and. You know, one 
like one, you don't have prescribing powers, and then two, or any type of administer, um, administering uh, um, authority. And I mean, anytime you're you're in a, a position like this, right? Because remember, as clinicians, we are in a very influential position with our clients. You know, you you're doing downright harmful treatment, behavior, what have you, whatever you want to use. And it turned out as I was reading through the articles that, yeah, our current VP, Kamala Harris, her office actually was the one that put her on that suspension and four-year probation because um, it was was incompetence, negligence, and a failure to maintain confidentiality to keep proper records, as well as intentional or reckless cause of emotional harm to a client. Right. Right. That doesn't sound like someone. And again, I mean, I don't like the judge. However, given what's been reported, given her prior history and her husband, I mean, this doesn't appear to be individuals who should be running a recovery or a sober house or providing any type of treatment, you know, because it just seems like there's been a consistent pattern of them doing this negligence and harming patients. So um, I think it's also an issue on you know, the, the board out there or these organizations or authority um, um, agencies out there that they're still continuing to allow these individuals to do so, right? And run these companies or these organizations. Like this is the second sober house that's clearly <laughs> seems to be experiencing the same issue that the first sober house experienced before they were shut down. So right. in addition to them, it's also an issue. It's, it appears to be with the board. Um, and I don't know anything about California and their, you know, their behavioral health board or, or, or governing bodies. But it seems like, you know, even though people have made reports and this has become public, it doesn't seem like things are being done to keep this from continuing to for them to continue to hurt patients. So. Um, but this is, this is disturbing. disturbing. Like it just got more and more disturbing and more and more cringeworthy as you continue to read through the article. Um, I guess the other thing that kind of struck me, struck a little nerve when I, when I was um, reading through is in terms of the ethical part of it, right? Um, you know, they kind of talk openly about, you know, talking about investment you know, uh, opportunities with the clients and pitching investment opportunities with the clients. And I get it, like they use some flowery language and kind of kind of tried to paint it under the guise of like, you know, when these people get out, you know, these sober living facilities, they don't have anywhere to, uh, they don't have anywhere to go to work. So it's kind of like a networking thing, quote unquote, but let's be honest. And I'm just going to be very honest. We're talking about people that can afford to pay $15,000 for quote unquote treatment per month. So we're being a little disingenuous, right? Because you're gonna have a hard time convincing me that somebody who can pay $15,000 or have their family member pay $15,000 a month for treatment is looking for a job. They're giving out jobs or they don't work. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? So it's a little disingenuous and I'm not a fool, right? So you have that problem in terms of the ethical part of what is who is an obvious vulnerable population of vulnerable people, right? And are they in the right mindset if they're either A, under the influence of, elite, of, of drugs, right? Or B, in a state of recovery or, 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 or getting treatment, right? Which we don't know what the emotional state is in terms of going through that process, right? We know all of the different fast, uh, all of the different stages that a person can go through, right? So whether it's a person that's just 
under the influence or a person that's going through the many stages that has to do with the, that detox and recovery period, is that appropriate to be doing business deals with them, right? And does that put you in a dual role, multiple roles, right? Obviously it, it, it does. Um, and then you have the whole quote unquote harm reduction terminology that they're hiding behind. And what they're kind of saying is, well, if our employees, you know, or implying is like, you know, if our employees go get drugs for people, at least they won't die, right? Because our employees are watching them, right? And we're here. So at least they won't die. And I don't think that's a good enough standard, if we're being honest, you know, um, and it kind of speaks to on a larger level, the lack of accountability that, they, that we have over these sober houses in, um, in general, right? If any accountability, right? Because I don't know if you've heard this from clients, but I've heard from more than one client about when they go to certain sober living homes, you know, about how much drug use is present there, you know? Um, from the owners on down. So again, we're just hearing about this because this is a rich people problem, but there's sober living homes in all of our communities, right? Um, and a lot of these places, I, I, especially if they're in certain cities, I guarantee you, like they're ones in Philly that I rode by and I literally thought they was like crack houses, right? I'm, I'm dead serious. Before I knew just by the condition the place was in and, and, and how people looked. In terms of in terms of what they're engaging and what type of activity they could be engaging, and I'm not accusing them of anything, but what I'm saying is it doesn't necessarily seem like the type of environment for um, sober living. You bring up a good point, and I'll end on this. I mean, this is um, absolutely a systemic issue. Unfortunately, you do have people in every industry, and mental health is no different where you have individuals who have been able to capitalize off of this, this population. So like you, you mentioned it, um, there are group homes, there are sober houses, there are halfway houses, there are all these other different houses or facilities or places, what have you, whatever terminology you would like you want to utilize and where people know, know that, okay, you have a lot of individuals that are experiencing substance abuse or coming with these mental health issues. And when they're coming out of like, inpatient hospitalizations they have to go place right there's not enough places for people to go and they're set up so where you have this instance of course you have a certain population that's able to pay out in, in cash or pay out straight but then a lot of times in the more marginalized communities they're using insurance so you have individuals that are coming into these sober houses that are coming into these group homes and their insurance that they're paying or you have a lot of individuals that um get disability so their disabilities um, checks or their money are filtering right into these sober houses. And so you've had a lot of bad, bad sober houses. I'm going to use the word bad, right? Or um, that they're unfortunately taking money from these individuals. And like you said, all kinds of things are, are taking place. I, like, you you know, I've, I've heard some patients unfortunately come back through through the hospital and they've, they've shared like horror stories. And so um, it's, it's definitely a bigger issue. Um, the I'm looking at it from a positive aspect where I'm happy where situations like this get highlighted because it is Hollywood and you have like more prominent figures that are speaking out um, about the issue. Um, and in addition, hopefully this starts to shine light on some of the smaller ones that are happening in, you know, these, these smaller neighborhoods. Um, but, none, you know, nothing about, about this, this particular situation is good. And um, 
I would like to say that, you know, it's going to be a point in time that somebody's going to get hurt. But obviously, you've already had clients that have passed away, unfortunately, under the care of these individuals or at this sober house. So I'm hoping that the board or the governing authorities out there take some action. So um, this can come to a, a stop because this is um, this is really unsettling. So uh, something for us to continue to monitor, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so moving forward, we'll, we'll stay in Hollywood a little bit. All right. So uh, Hollywood pop culture. So recently, um, the topic of homophobia in hip hop has recently been trending. Okay. Okay. So, so this was prompted uh, within the past couple of weeks by rapper The Baby. Uh, while he was at Rolling Loud, which is a concert or festival that took place a couple weeks down in Miami. Uh, while he was performing, he said some uh, pretty unsettling homophobic and HIV AIDS uh, stigma filled rant while he was on stage. So um, I'm not going to go into what he said, because I'm sure most people have already heard it because uh, it's been out there for a couple weeks. But. Nevertheless, uh, his comments were met with swift backlash from members of the LGBTQ community and its celebrity allies, such as Elton John, Madonna, and, and other individuals that came out. Surprisingly, um, the baby actually doubled down on his comments the following day, um, even after the backlash, even going as far as saying his gay fans weren't offended or upset about what he said. Um, and then as outrage continued to mount, and then you had more venues like, you know, taking him off the bill. And he was, you know, of course, losing money by, you know, getting taken off some of these shows. Then he offered an apology. So um, in addition, and we'll touch a little bit about um, his particular situation, but just kind of overall, this opened up, you know, a discussion that I know I was asked just kind of being, you know, a mental health um, clinician and advocate. You know, I've had a lot of people come and ask me about, the stage or about the level or the current state state of, of homophobia in hip hop. So um, first and foremost, what, what was your, your take initially on as this kind of started to, you know, uh, progress over the past couple of weeks with, with just with his situation at first? Um, well, listen, I, I look at it two, two ways. I look at it two kind of two ways. One, I'm not surprised, right? Because, in terms of the perception, the statements, like these things have always been around hip hop, right? I'm not minimizing it. I'm just talking in terms of uh, a fact as a person that, you know, has listened to hip hop all my life, right? So um, there's always been present, right? The same way this type of belief has been present in like, you know, locker rooms and athletes, some athletes and those type of things. Um, two things I kind of think when I listen to this is that it is, Two words come to come to kind of mind. Hypocritical, right, of course, and selective outrage, right? Um, and what I mean by that is, like, listen, people tolerate certain things and ignore other things, right? So hip-hop is 100% okay with Young M.A., right? right? They're 100% okay with Young M.A., you know, females can explore their bisexuality, right? They can wear it as a badge on their chest, right? Megan Thee Stallion can flirt with, can make a song with Cardi B, and they could talk about, you know, uh, in, engaging in sexual acts, right? Or imply that with other women, right? And people yeah. think it's sexy, it's okay, right? And again, Young M.A. on the other end can have a girlfriend, she could be a gangster rapper, and it's okay. Right now, what is the common common thread that these are women, right? 
it's tolerated. The male, most of the male rappers, you don't hear anybody say nothing about it. You definitely don't hear females say anything about it. It's okay, right? Little Nas X expresses his affection for another male. Everybody hits the roof, right? Tyler, the creator, does it. Everybody hits the roof, right? Um, so that's why I say selective outrage. My other mm -hmm. point is when you look at somebody like the baby, right? Like, again, he held on to his point, right? So he, he, he really didn't want to be moved, right? But the reason why I say hypocritical is because I doubt that, see, this thing doesn't just stop at one thing. He's talking about the LGBTQ community, right? So I'm not a fool. So this also includes gender roles and the pushing of gender roles, which has been done by this generation, right? So what is the what do you think the baby's reaction is if Conway the Machine calls him to do a song? Andre 3000, Young Thug, Gunner. They don't all wore dresses, bro. Right. Pocketbooks. I didn't hear anybody say anything about what this about about that, right? And I'm just presenting the counter argument. I'm just showing why it's selective outrage, right? Because again, you know, we have people that are pushing the envelope. This is Tyler, the creator. You were the one telling me that he identified as, as bisexual, right? Yeah. So we yeah. have all of these examples, right? But we only attack certain people, right? So that's why I say, I, I heard it, you know, of course it was, you know, it's offensive, it's ignorant, but I looked and I'm like, hypocritical and selective outrage. That's what came to me because all of the people that jump on that bandwagon, they're offended by one thing, not offended by another. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, it was, um, for me, it was, it was a couple of things. And I definitely want to touch on the selective outrage because I also feel like it's a double standard, especially with, and you kind of highlighted and touched on it, Rip. So misogyny has long been in, 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 um, in his music and in hip hop overall, right? Especially right. historically, hip hop music has been homophobic not condoning it, but I'm also not going to sit here and, and be a hypocrite and say, I don't listen to it. Like I haven't said mouth, you know, sang along with lyrics of all, I mean, name any, any rapper. Right. Right. I think the thing with the babies we're talking particularly about him is that he's crossed a certain threshold, right? He's, he's no longer kind of some of the, 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 your, your lower tier rappers. So anything he says is going to get highlighted at this point. I don't know if he realized it. I guess he realizes it now, but he's crossed over into like that pop, right? That pop rap star. So anything he says is going to get, you know, it's going to get blown up. I think also with this is, which is, um, is that one, he put it directly kind of in our faces, right? So Rolling Loud is like one of the first new like concerts that's come out. Like everybody was on the bill. I don't know if you saw who was performing, but anybody who was anybody was at Rolling Loud. So this is like this is like one of the first new like major concerts that happened in 2021, you know, uh, since COVID has started. So he kind of put it directly like in everyone's faces while he was kind of ranting on stage. So it was almost like. He, it was almost a choice where I don't know, not a choice, but it was more of a situation where I don't know how many people or how many venues or whomever would have been able to ignore it just for the fact that he he just went on this this long rant about it. Like if like I said, I'm not gonna really say what he said, but it was it was a pretty long rant. Right. The other piece that really stood out to me because what he said was absolutely you know was terrible and not condoning it was the was the education piece, 
Right. And that's one of the things that I really had an issue with was more that the education people more of a lack of the lack of their up. Right. So he's going down there. Even when he doubled down, he was like, oh, my gay fans, you know, they don't have A's and blah, 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 blah. And all these other different things. And it just seemed like he, when he was up there saying and double it down, that he was just continuing to kind of spread or say like these long debunked theories about gay people and AIDS. Right. And that was like more the, like the surprising thing for me was more like you're saying things that like years ago, this was the issue. Right. Years ago, this was the rumor. This was these were the, the, the stereotypes and things that went on to it. And it seemed like what he was saying was like extremely like just out of touch, like just really like and you mentioned the word ignorant in the sense of they were just really uneducated. And, you know, it was almost to a point where. If I'm him saying these like outdated and what you know debunked theories, it's almost embarrassing to a certain extent because you're saying things that have long been you know proven by science, by medicine, all these other different things. And so, you know, I feel like th that's also a piece that can't be ignored is that it's the education piece, right? Now we're, we we know that you know you can live, you can have an active life if you do have HIV or AIDS. It's not a death sentence; it's treatable, so on and so forth. And it's not just reserved for gay men. So I feel like that's also the piece that, to me, that stood out was just like, all right, he seems like he's really uninformed about this particular thing, right? And like you said, like, you said, like I think we're, you know, at a point where we've made progress. Um, with as far as the homophobia, the LGBTQ community being represented for the reason, like you just mentioned, you have Little Nas X, who's just released two major videos. I think they each have like 40, 50 million views on YouTube. And so now it's, which is it, right? Is it a situation where if you do have someone from that community who's a pop star or a rapper and he puts out a video and he's, you know, avidly and adamantly saying, hey, this is, you know, what I'm into, this is what I represent. And now it's like, oh, it's too homoerotic, right? It's too, this is this too hypersexual. Think, think about that, right? Think about how many videos we done seen with girls grinding on girls. Right. Right? So that's the and, thing. And, and his video is too erotic. Think about it. somebody opened their mouth and said that. Yeah, think about they were, they were protesting, videos. man. They were they were protesting all, all types and they're trying to get the video banned and all the things. And, so, and when that happened, I'm sitting here like, well, wait a minute. Like how I, I thought this is what we want. I thought we wanted to make progress in hip hop. Right. So if you can have the women and I'm not condoning that either, but if you can have women like in a Hype Williams video, right, or a, or a little X video and, you know, you have, you have the, the models that are dancing in the back, they're half naked and so on and so forth. And he can, what's the problem or the issue with him, you know, and he has whoever dancing in the back in the shower, in the prison scene, whatever, you know, with the video. Now that's outrage, right? Now that's too much. So, like but I said, it's, that's like, it's, why, it's a double standard. And, I mean, that's why I said what I said, though. That's why I called it selective outrage, because he's an easy target. You understand what I'm saying? He's an easy target. And that's the only reason. That's why I brought up in terms of them being so offended by that, right? And being offended by individuals who identify with LGBTQA lifestyle, right? They're offended. If you're offended by that, then you're offended by all of it, is what I would assume by every aspect of it or most aspects of it, right? So you, so you are offended by that, but you selectively ignore 
Young M.A., you selectively ignore what Megan Thee Stallion and Carly B is doing, and then you selectively ignore males, right, who are wearing dresses and incorporating female purses in their videos, right, as part of their dress. I ain't got no problem with it because it doesn't impact me. But what I'm, but you understand where I'm going with it. You can't be upset at Little Nas X. You understand? And then you have all of these other places, right, where it's obvious, you know, that these this generation is looking at gender as more and more fluid. You understand what I'm saying? They're embracing it and you're in the mix of all of that and you have nothing to say about that. That's why I say it's so crazy because again, I've heard nothing. We see all of these guys in the video, you, you, you know what I'm saying? We're wearing women's clothing, different things and you don't hear anything. But Little Nas X is an easy target because he's not a gangster rapper. It's easier to say that to Little Nas X who's not a gangster rapper than Young Thug, who identifies himself as a gang member. It's just easier to say that, you know what I'm saying? Um, because then you might have to stand on it, you know? Um, so I think it also again, comes it's an down interesting conversation, but that's why I say it's hypocritical. I think it also comes down to the money thing, right? We've, we've talked in a lot of conversations. Unfortunately, you know, the financial aspect cannot be ignored. So you look at Lil Nas X, right? And he remains pretty much like the only openly queer rapper with major crossover success, right? So we're, you're hoping that with Lil Nas X, you're, we're finally starting to see, um, you know, a, a queer black man that's celebrated in this genre, right? Because again, historically with hip hop, you know, especially with black men, that has been something where if you were in that genre of being gay or you were expressing your sexuality in that manner, I mean, in that manner, it was frowned upon. So this is the first, again, black male and openly queer, queer who's had crossover success. Now, it also comes down to the money aspect, right? Because the record label is saying we can make money with him. So right. even though if he's, you know, being protested against and so on and so forth people these you know these ultra conservative views or i mean these ultra conservative groups and so on and so forth he's still making money right he's still bringing in the views he's still getting you know invited to the concerts and things of that nature so as long as you're bringing money in right the same way to the fact where you have like a cardi b or you have meg the stallion if they're doing all of these different positions and they can talk like if they're still making money it's gonna be fine so it's different if you have like because we've had other different um LGBT uh rappers come. I'm trying to think. Um there was a couple people, uh, I think what's his name? Um I love Mac. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So he had a, a they had a hit, I think it was like 2014, 2015, but it didn't really pop, right? Like it had it was like a hit and then it kind of just phased out. And so, you know, because he didn't blow or whatever. It wasn't really supported, but now you have Lil Nas, Lil Nas X, and you can't you can't ignore that because he also has good music. Like I'm, I'm not gonna lie, I'm not the biggest Lil Nas X, but he has some catchy songs. So he's making money, money, and the record label is gonna say, hey, you know what? We're still gonna support this guy. They're gonna go to all these other different radio stations. They're gonna go, you know, they're gonna keep that machine going. So that's what it also comes down to of who's making money and who's not, right? So he was able to be the first crossover person, you know, again, openly gay black man who's having this type of success. Like you said, you know, you have Tyler, the creator, who's, you know, identified as bisexual and, you know, he's successful, but it's also a situation where he's already proven how talented he is as a producer, as a rapper. So, 
you know, it seems like with him, things are kind of secondary because people were kind of respect the talent first. But I wonder what if he would have come out, you know, earlier, maybe when he first started his career, how that would have been accepted. accepted. But again, it's the money part, you know, like because Lil Nas X is he's he's crossed over. They're going to support him. His record label, no matter what he comes out with, he has a, a huge following. So, you know, I feel like that's also another thing where, you know, if that person make money, they're going to get supported. They're going to have the community. They're going to have all these things behind them. Um, but otherwise, sometimes that's where things kind of get fall to the wayside. So but um, there's definitely I, I'm happy to say that at least it's starting to make progress. I'm also going to be realistic. I'm not, I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but I also feel like, unfortunately, homophobic lyrics will continue to be in you know, hip hop, it does appear that some hip hop artists are now kind of reducing saying like the F word. They're, they're kind of they're more aware to becoming more educated. And that's why I feel like even with the um, with the, the baby situation, like I feel like more education, especially as it pertains to HIV, AIDS and gay men, that's where the growth has to take place. The more educated you are, then, you know. I think you're able to make more informed decisions. Like as opposed to saying that rant that he said, you could just be like, you know, everybody put your hands in the air. Like you just don't care. As opposed to going on that other rant. Cause I, you know, um, so I think the education piece is helping and, and, you know, hopefully Lil Nas X will be the, is just the first or one of the pioneers of more to come into this. But I, I mean, it's getting better and better, but there are going to be some setbacks, but it's definitely a double standard. Yeah. I mean, listen, I just, listen, anybody who doubts it, you know, you can go back to, you know, um, a lot of female MCs, some of them famous, real famous, some of them not, you know, who have been very vocal with, um, you know, speaking about their sexuality publicly, right? Some of the legends going back to the 80s. You understand what I'm saying? And they've been not only accepted, but idolized in hip hop, right? But they've all been female, they've all been women. So I think in terms of this conversation, we really got to also be specific, right? Because the people that are being that that the, the kind of hate is being directed towards are the men, not the mm-hmm. not the not the women. It's the men. So we got to be real specific. Because even when we just say, "Oh, against the LGBTQ uh, community," you know, we're kind of I think we're kind of a little bit dismissing somebody like Little Nas X's experience, right? Because again, I'm not saying those those female artists don't or those or those women that our artists don't, don't receive any hate or anything like that, but the outrage comes towards him. We have all these other examples. Right. Young and maybe been out for years. We, not, we ain't talking about that because <laughs> it's not an issue. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, again, um, I think, you know, we need to highlight exactly, you know, who's being impacted. Absolutely. So something to continue to monitor, um, but good discussion nonetheless, uh, you know, um, speaking of being targeted and uh, certain populations. So um, the Black Lives Matter movement has brought an increasing attention to disparities and how police officers treat black and white Americans. Now, research published by the American Psychology, I mean, Psycho- Psychological Association finds that there's a disparity that may exist even in subtle differences in the officer's tone of voice when they address black and white drivers during routine traffic stops. 
All right, so the study that recently came out, researchers gathered short audio excerpts from police body camera footage and found that when officers spoke to black men at traffic traffic stops, their tone of voice conveyed less warmth, less respect, and less ease than when they spoke to white men. So in this study, they extracted 250 audio clips, about 10 seconds each from the body camera footage of the routine traffic stops of male drivers in a mid U um, in a mid-sized U.S. city. The researchers removed the audio of the drivers' voices so that listeners could uh, hear the police officer's side of the conversation. So out of 414 total participants, uh, 239 were female, 175 were male. male. They listened to the recordings at the rate um, and and rated the officer's tone of voice. So the people that involved in the study were like um, that were listening were college students and like local drivers. All right. And it turned out that even though the participants didn't know the race of the driver, right, they were able to include they were able to distinguish how in the difference between how um, officers talk to white drivers and black drivers. So the experiments included a diverse pool of white, black, Latino, and Asian participants. And the majority of the officers whose voices were used were men. It was 105 male and 11 female. So again, I'm going to say they came out the research, the results of the study is that the tone of voice was less respectful and less warm and less at ease than when they spoke to white drivers than it was black men. What do you think about that, Jack? I mean, I thought a lot of things when I was thinking about this, but um, what I was most thinking about, and I'm not pointing to any research when I say this, I'm mostly thinking about like anecdotally and things that I've seen, but I was just thinking about how many times and how many situations, right, we've seen somebody get killed over a simple situation, right? Mm-hmm. Like, a, like a George Floyd situation where I don't want to get into the specifics, but whether you out a $20 bill, right? If that's what that person is accused of, right? Or Alton Smith, if you're accused of CDs, right? Which is punishable, punishable by a ticket. You know what I'm saying? Or if you're Tamar Rice and you're in the uh, uh, park with a toy gun, right? All of these things. Um, a lot of simple, you know, or people who have had like, like um, I don't know, you know, warrants for drug offenses or different things. We've, we've seen a lot of simple situations get out of control to the point where somebody has died. So when I look at this, it makes me think about that because it makes me think about like how much the initial confrontation impacts the rest of that, how it goes, right? Um, because again, if you approach me and you say, you know, I don't want to play police officer here, but what I'm saying is, you know, um, you know, we a lot of times we talk about the messenger and the message and that, you know, how that impact one impacts the other. Um, and all I'm saying is that initial account encounter. How many times have we seen, you know, somebody start an encounter and it'd be very com- conflictual, um, you know, and very aggressive. And then somebody else come into the same confrontation and be able to calm it down. Right. And that person is eventually taken into custody or arrested or given a ticket. Right. So my my thought is going to continuously go back to those tens of hundreds of however many, many cases that we've seen of simple situations that should have ended up being simple situations and ended up with somebody dead. And no, I, I, it definitely starts with the beginning of the interaction. Right. Like we've always talked about, we've told our clients, um, 
about the way you communicate, how, you know, what that looks like, body language, all these other different things makes a huge difference and sets the tone for how an interaction or a conversation is going to go. So when you have these racial disparities in cues just as subtle as an officer's tone, that's going to shape not only how the interaction or the rest of the conversation is going to go, but it also shapes someone's trust in the police and can alter their whole interpretation of follow, following encounters. Because this is the bigger picture, right? And this is also what I was thinking. The bigger picture is that this has an impact not only on our community, but it also impacts cops or police officers being able to do their jobs and their own safety. So if you look at the picture, as you think about it, if there's a lack of trust, which is what this can promote, if there's a lack of trust between cops or just being based off of this subtle cue, right? That means there's a lack of trust with victims, survivors. That means witnesses aren't going to talk to the cops. That means it's going to be harder for the police to do their job. That makes the communities less safe. That means not just for our community members, but also for the police officers. Right? There's, there's a, a huge bigger picture based off the tone that's being conveyed to when they're addressing, you know, people of color or more specifically, as it says in this study, um, black drivers. And so I, I was, as I, I finished reading this article, I saw another article came up and it was a 2020 analysis of 95 million traffic stops that found that black Americans are more likely to be pulled over than white drivers and more likely to be searched, even though they're less likely than their white peers to be carrying illegal contraband. Right. right? So in this study, it compa said compared to white drivers, the black drivers um, and the black community members were 57 percent less likely to hear the officer use words such as sir. Ma'am, thank you. And 61% more likely to hear a word such as dude, bro, and command such as put your hands on the wheel. That's a huge difference. People may not think so, but that's a huge difference. And they just mentioned in the first article, less respect. So if you have a cop or any or some authority figure that's talking to you, dude, bro, boy, hands on the wheel, all these other different commands, yeah, that's a recipe for disaster, right? That's a recipe. You're already setting the tone. You're already talking down to. There's so much that goes in, into that. Just those small different phrases right in the beginning of that conversation. And so, again, this is where the bigger issue and the bigger picture becomes, because it's not just, again, at that particular inter that, that inter interaction, but now it gets passed on. Like we've talked about it in the past of how we've had to prepare. And even when we did the... um you know, we did the talk for, for NAMI, right? We've talked about how, unfortunately, we have to go through this rites of passage of when individuals come of age and they start driving. Because right. now that conversation has to take place that my mom had with me, I'm sure your, your parents had with you, of, okay, this is how you survive an interaction when you get pulled over with the cops. Right. So, and this is where it starts. It's that tone. It's all these little subtle, these subtle cues and racial disparities that take place that filter into this. I mean, I, I definitely agree. Um, and again, I mean, this is a fairly small study, you know, for 400, a little bit over 400 people. But again, we're still getting information that supports what individuals have been saying for years, right? Um, how they treat us, how they talk to us, these different things in terms of um, people's reactions to the police or to their presence or to, and whether or not they, they're willing to support them or not support them or work with them, you know, in times where they, where they haven't committed any offense. Cause all of this impacts that. Cause if I'm being shown less respect, less warmth, all of these things, 
when I'm driving to the store to get some groceries, you better believe if you knock on my door and you ask me what I've seen, uh, the, you know, all day, it's going to impact how I talk to you. Right. Right. Um, so I think, again, it's, it's kind of more evidence, you know, for individuals who have been kind of dismissing people of color as emotional um, and, you know, all of those things, but it, it supports what people have been saying. Right. So I think it just leads to the question again, like, well, what do you do about it? Right. Um, because a lot of what we're seeing, um, you know, some of it is conscious, some of it is implicit bias. So what we do about it, I, I don't necessarily know because, you know, we might have to look at the type of education, the type of training people are getting, right? Because um, it might have to be more intensive than looking at slides and reading the definition of implicit bias 17 times, you know? Um, no, I mean, this is definitely something um, that the police departments have to recognize that this is a problem. Like there has to be acknowledgement um, regarding that there is unconscious, un unconscious bias in these types of situations. It's, it's coming to the forefront and they have to acknowledge that the role that race plays in the criminal justice system. Like I said, this is a, a larger issue. This is a systemic issue. And there is a larger problem between police and communities that they serve. So um, and it just really reflects uh, the amount of work that law enforcement needs to continue to do to address this issue. So, so um, I believe that's where it starts. Like you said, it was training, but there just has to be like we've always talked about in any situation, awareness and acknowledgement. When you acknowledge that there is an issue and you're aware that there's an issue, okay, now we can start to put some things into place and trim it. But if these organizations or these departments don't think that there is an issue, then unfortunately it's going to continue to progress and get worse. So um, we're going to have to continue to watch this. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to end off on a good note. All right, so um, Jay, are you are you a Game of Thrones fan? Definitely, man. Definitely. All right, cool. All right, because you wasn't, bro. Uh, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna end this podcast. I don't know. You uh, do. Listen, man, my, my <laughs> favorite episode by far was the Red Wedding. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. So, pretty much the star of the show, Kit Harrington, otherwise known as Jon Snow, the bastard son and child. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, so recently he did an interview, I believe it was with GQ um, in the Game of Thrones star, admittedly. And he acknowledged that uh, while he was on Game of Thrones, it, uh, you know, just the hectic work schedule and all the other different intangibles that came along with um, with, you know, that schedule and, and, and the show. It led it led to some mental health difficulties for him, um, which eventually uh, caused him to take a year off. So I'm going to read. um you know, quote or uh, an excerpt from what he mentioned in, in the interview said, um, so it's been three years since the Game of Thrones. Um, the interviewer had asked him, you know, about some of the difficulties and he had asked him if he had ever felt suicidal. And he said, yes. He said, I went through periods of real depression where I wanted to do all sorts of things. You know, he said, you feel like you're a bad person and you feel like you're a shameful person and you feel like there's no way out. You know, he said uh, eventually he went to, I think, a, a facility in Connecticut. He went to a rehab facility um, for substances and behaviors. He said mainly alcohol. 
Um, and he was very forthcoming. He said his marriage was tested to a breaking point. He said, um, you know, you said you really can't imagine the stress that, that happens, happens to you when you're going through this type of process. And he says, you know, what he'll say about his addictions is that he kept them very, very quiet and that he was incredibly secretive and incredibly locked up with them. So, you know, that came as a surprise to people around him, which is often quite the case. Um, so it is, I am going to give an update that he has, um, he said he's doing well, you know, he, he was successful in treatment and said it's, you know, an ongoing process. So um, as you read this, this article, um, what were some things that came to the forefront for you, Jeff? I mean, just first and foremost, obviously it's important that he kind of, um, you know, was willing to share his story because he didn't have to do that. Um, but what came to my mind is, what always does whenever we talk about one of these issues with celebrities is that, you know, you look from the outside and you think that everything is good, right? Because they are on TV and they, and our assumption is that they're financially secure. Um, but he was talking about alcoholism, um, depressive symptoms. Um, and he was kind of making some implications about suicidal ideation. Right. Um, so again, it just reinforces the point that, you know, we all got to kind of support each other or the people who are in our circle, right? And you got to reach out, you got to ask. And if you haven't seen people in over a certain amount of time, you need to check on them, right? Because it doesn't matter if you see somebody on Facebook and they smiling and they look good, and, you know what I mean? They're on Instagram and they look like they're having a good time. You know, so a lot of people are posing, right? Um, because just because somebody got a good job, they make a hundred, Two, three hundred thousand a year doesn't mean that they they're not depressed, right? Just because somebody has a you know a woman or a man that looks good, you know, or you think has money or a nice car, you know, doesn't mean that they're not going through domestic violence issues or anxiety or all these things. So that's what it made me think of, right? Because we constantly tell ourselves right after we talk about this story, I'm going to turn on my phone, Instagram, and forget. That just because people have notoriety and money, they you know that they don't have problems. I'm gonna forget as soon as I see somebody sitting in a Ferrari, you know, because um, we assume that you know um, positive feelings go along with that, and that that's not necessarily the case. So it's a reminder, you know, check on people you love um, and and have that insight and perspective into knowing, you know, that if you do have, you know. If you do have your mental health and your physical health, you're a very fortunate person. Totally. Um, what I would add to that is I, I want people to take away when they read or when they hear stories and read some articles such as this, is that, you know, mental health doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care about your age. It doesn't care about your race. It doesn't care about your gender. It doesn't care about your, your social economic status. And like you mentioned, doesn't care about how much money you're making, your job. Mental health doesn't discriminate and everybody is susceptible to depression, to anxiety, to addiction. And what I appreciated from this article was that, you know, celebrities have more influence than ever. Right. Due to their presence on, you know, in movies and television, especially on now on social media. Um, and there's a downside to that is that, you know, people feel that they're celebrities 
owe them more access, right, to their to their private lives, which is a false assumption. Um, but what I do like is that when you have celebrities such as him and others that are across the you know the entertainment world, and they choose to like humanize themselves, they they choose in an effort to advocate for mental health and advocate for emotional well being based on their own struggles and their experiences. And so again, they have so much more influence. So you know and I know that causes and you know health issues when they get a face that's when people start to start paying attention to it more right so whether it be cancer or whether it be suicide prevention when you get a face when you get somebody notable this is where those conversations start to talk so i'm i'm always you know it's not good that he went through that because i don't wish any mental health issues on um, on anyone, but it's good when you start to see that shift in the way people view and talk about mental health when you see a celebrity or somebody that's notable um, about it. So when you start to have these conversations about depression or anxiety or, or addiction um, and they move like he said, and, and I'm happy he mentioned, he said he kept it very quiet. Right. He said he kept it very incre- incredibly secretive and it came as a surprise to even people that were close to him. And so it's good that we're starting to see these conversations move more from the private private to the public sector. And so that's important when these public figures start to open up about their mental health struggles, because now that's how you break down the stigma. That's how we start to get more research. People start to get more awareness and then it sparks important discussions. And so you never know with this person, like with Jon Snow, who is as tough as they come, right? Everybody knows Jon Snow, winter is coming. We, we know it, right? You start to see individuals like him, and even though he's a character, but it's still something that he represents, is that it can inspire people to seek treatment, hopefully. So, um, you know, I'm happy that he was, you know, he decided to share that because, like you mentioned, he didn't have to. He doesn't owe us anything. Um, However, you know, he he put himself out there in in a very vulnerable position to share what he's been experiencing. So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, this sets the tone even more so, even though we've already seen a lot of celebrities come out. Hopefully, you know, this continues to be, you know, a growing trend. Definitely, man. Um, you, you know, again, I just I think it can go a long way for reducing stigma. Um, you know, I gotta I gotta give him credit for being willing to talk about it. Yeah. Absolutely. So um before we get out of here, Jay, um follow-up. I don't know if you saw it at just maybe a day or so. Remember, we talked about the uh Britney Spears conservatorship. Uh yeah, I just saw it today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So her dad stepped down. He's going to be ending at least his, I guess, his portion or part in the conservatorship. So it seems like, like, you know, gradually she's starting to things, you know, things are are starting to go in her favor. So that's good because we talked about how um, a very bizarre and unfortunate situation that she was experiencing due to the conservatorship. So, you know, like we always talk about with some of these cases and articles, we continue to monitor. So I'm, I'm hope I'm happy to see that that's, you know, going favorable in her direction. And hopefully, you know, she can start to regain more control over her life and, you know, all of her things that, um, that she's responsible for. So that's good. It's really good. Yep. It's the power of technology and public pressure. Yeah. How about that? You know, um, so that's all we got for today. We appreciate everybody hanging out with us um, again, again. You know, episode 24. Continue to watch, listen, um, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. Um, you know, send us a message on uh, through our email, the Black Psychologist Podcast um, at gmail.com. You know, 
comment, you know, underneath. We, you know, we we like to go back and forth, and you know, we really appreciate the support from everybody. So, um, anything else, Jay, before we get out of here, brother? Uh, not really, man. Just again, want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen. Um, please continue to like the videos, comment on the videos, and we're gonna continue to do our thing. Appreciate right. it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, Jay. Um, till next week. I'll get at you, good brother. Appreciate everybody being here. No doubt. All right.